this week I had a conversation with Gracie. I don't remember which day it was. The, the days have kind of run together through the week. But I said, well, tell me what's going on now. And she says, Dad, I'm reading this incredible book about marriage by Timothy Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. I said, yeah, that is an incredible book. I'm really glad you're reading it. She said, and Uncle Kevin, which means Kevin Roberts, told me to start listening to these sermons by Andy Stanley. And so I've been listening to his sermon series on relationships. And I said, yeah, I said, and what are you learning from all of this? And she said, well, lots. But the big thing I've learned this week, she said, I see things in um, her husband-to-be, JT, in my fiancé, she said JT, I see things in JT that I really honor because they do so much for our relationship. He's very kind and he's very patient. And she said, and those are things I really need and, and respect. And she said, and what, what I've learned this week is if there are things like that in him that I value, I need to make sure that I'm also modeling those things for him and giving them to him as well. And she said, and dad, I'm not typically a very patient person. I'm sitting there going, tell me something I didn't know. No, I didn't. I didn't say that. I didn't want her to get mad. No, uh, I'm joking. I said, well, honey, I said, uh, actually, I didn't say anything yet. I'm just listening. She said, and you know what I decided? It is not adequate for me to just say, well, I'm just not a patient person. She said, I need to be a patient person and I need to pray about it. And there are ways that I need to change. And I'm absolutely convinced God can change me. And it's not adequate to say, this is just who I am. Because as a Christian, it's never just who we are. It's just who we were. And I said, my girl. That is fantastic. I said, honey, you've done a a wonderful explanation of why Paul used such a splendid metaphor when he talked about the fruit of the Spirit. You don't go out to your apple tree one day and and there's nothing there. And then the next day there's a full-grown apple ready to eat. It grows. And it grows from the inside out. And it takes time. And it may not be perceptible. But that's the way it happens. And I said, so, so yes, you're absolutely right. I applaud you. I pray for you. And I'm excited to watch you continue to grow into who you need to be. So that conversation takes place. And then I'm working on the lesson. And as I worked on the lesson, the lesson this week, there are lots of little points I like about this lesson. But one that really stands out for me is the way we see Paul grow in the Lord. Lots of times we don't think about that because Paul wrote so much of Scripture and the hand of God and the Spirit of God has breathed into what Paul wrote so that we have inspired godly words that sometimes we forget Paul the man had lots of growing to do. So I want us to look at it and I want us to do it. Whoops, that's supposed to be off the screen. Go the other way. There you go. Let me tell you what I used to think. See if any of you can relate to this. I used to think that at some point in time you're born. And you live your life until you find Jesus and you're converted. And you become a believer. 
You put your faith in him. And from there on, you have the life of a believer, which is a life of growing in the Lord to be more like Jesus daily. And there's truth to that. But I don't really like the picture I drew. Because I think it's not that way. I think it's this way. I think that you're born. I think you come to a point in your life where you're converted. But the way you grow in the Lord is not that straight line. The way you grow in the Lord is sometimes forward, sometimes back. Sometimes forward, sometimes back. Sometimes forward, sometimes way back. And you think, why beat that years ago? Why is it bothering me today? Or you think, no, no, no. Why am I in this rut? I'm saved. I'm not supposed to be having these problems. I prayed about it. And yet, and you, you know, and, and over time, that growth is going to be more like Jesus. But it just isn't that straight line. Sometimes we need what in legal circles we call continuing legal education. I got my law license 30 years ago. But the state bar says every year I've got to take a certain number of hours of continuing legal education just to stay on my game. So it's a refresher. Sometimes that happens in our walk. And I think we're going to see that with Paul today. So with that, let's get into our mission trip. Now, we are studying Paul's second missionary journey through the narrative of Acts right now. We've slowed up a little bit to make sure we've got the whole growth of the church going here and we see how it's unfolding. So this is the map we've been using at least last week. And we talked about how from Antioch, Paul and Silas launched. They went to go visit those churches in Galatia that they'd started on their first missionary trip. They picked up Timothy along the way in Lystra. And then they went further. They thought they were going to head north and go up into Bithynia. But God said, no, I have other plans for you. And we talked about this last week as God sent them to Troas, where in Troas they picked up Luke. A great addition. God had important plans. So now the four of them, at least, they cross that little bit of the sea and they go to Philippi. We talked about that several weeks ago, and we talked about how Philippi was one of the cities on the Via Ignatia, which is the the road that went across Macedonia and connected the west coast with the east coast. It was the safest way to get from Italy over to what we would now call Istanbul. You just took that little boat ride right across the boot and uh, took the Appian Way up into Rome and you're there. Now, Paul, it looks pretty clearly by the way Luke lays it out, Paul is making his way across that road like he's going to Rome. But when Paul gets to Thessalonica, he runs into trouble. And the trouble's bad enough that they have to usher Paul out of town unexpectedly at night. They take him to Berea. And in Berea, while Paul seems to be waiting for a chance to go back on the road to Rome, the Thessalonians come in and they cause him grief there, which causes Paul to leave by himself and go to Athens. Now, Silas and Timothy will come join him a little later. And the, the chronology is a little fuzzy here. Do they join him in Athens or do they join him afterwards? I think it's afterwards. But regardless uh, of that fuzziness, we're not getting into it today. 
Paul from Athens then goes to Corinth. And that's where we are today. So Paul has done Athens. He's had some success. It doesn't seem to be a great deal of success. But you can't be in Athens and fail to go to Corinth. If you ever go to Athens, or if you've been to Athens, maybe you did this, but if if not, if you ever go to Athens, make the 40, 50-mile drive down to Corinth. You get to do it in a car. You don't have to walk the way he did. It's an easy trip. He might have sailed, but uh, uh, regardless. Let me tell you about Corinth. Pauline scholar and New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says that Corinth is, in, in our mantra and in our culture, we should think of Corinth as a little bit of New York City, rolled in with a little bit of Las Vegas, and a little bit of Los Angeles. It had some of the elements of each of those places. It was a thriving metropolis of New York City. It was a blending of culture of New York City. It was an entertainment, some might say sin capital, of Las Vegas. And it had all of the sporting love and all of the, 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 for its area of the globe, all of the, the bon vivants and the personalities of Hollywood and of Los Angeles. So that's kind of in modern parlance what we'd say about Corinth. But I think we can do better than that. I want us to go back and understand what we can about the city beyond. Everyone asks, Corinthian leather? Of course, why not the best? It's the same with our new Chrysler New Yorker to give you... Corinthian leather, of course, why not the best? Y'all remember that ad? Is anybody, is anybody in here old enough to remember that ad? We'll do that again. Everyone asks, Corinthian leather? Of course, why not the best? It's the same with our new Chrysler New Yorker. It gives you. Okay, there's no such thing as Corinthian leather. Let's just get that out of the picture in the first place. An ad agency thought that sounded really good, and they made it up strictly for the Chrysler LeBaron or cars that had it. So Ricardo Montalban will say, it's fine Corinthian leather. But that means nothing. So that's what Corinth is not. Let me talk to you about Corinth and what it is. You can go back to Corinth. Let's strip down the map a little bit and get it to Corinth. You can go back to Corinth. And if you were on a boat somewhere in the Italy side of things, in the west, and you wanted to go to the east on your boat, hauling all of the goods you have. You did not go south around Greece because the waters there are very treacherous, treacherous. There are lots of shoals. It's really hard to hug the coast. And remember, these ships back then did not like to get beyond view of the coast. They liked to sail as close to the coast as they could. So it was very treacherous. So what they did, instead of going south, is they went through Corinth. Let me tell you how they did it. Let's blow up the little map of Corinth, and let's look at it a little bit tighter. This is a a Google Earth view that I'm using. And you have trouble seeing it, but if you look to the left, it looks like there might be a meeting of the land. There's not. 
the only place that entire isthmus joins the mainland of Greece is that sliver of land you can see on the lower right-hand corner, mid-right-hand part of the slide. It's about four and a half miles of land. Now, way back, even before Jesus, the Greeks and the Romans had thought about digging through that. But when they made their measurements, they thought the Adriatic side to the east was higher. The water was higher than it was on the west. They said, if we dig through, we'll flood the whole land. So they decided against it. Wasn't done, wasn't dug through. Let's uh, pull up another view of this. This is a Google Earth view of a finer point. That is a canal that does cross there today. It was finished in 1893. And if you look at it, if you're standing there looking at it, that's what it looks like. And that's the cut through. So now the boats can go straight through that cut. But if you went back in time beforehand, what they did is they built a road across here, the Diolcos Road. And the Diolcos Road was, they were heavy, heavy paving stones. These are still ones today that you can see. And this road was anywhere from 10 to 15 feet wide. And they had these trolleys, for lack of a better way of saying it, that would hold the ship. And they would lug the ship out of the water and drag it for four and a half miles to the other side and put it back in the water. That was safer and that was cheaper than trying to sail around Greece. So that's what they did back then. And here's an artist's reconstruction of, of one of the boats. And, and yeah, if you're thinking ocean liners, eh Okay, these, these are, these are boats you haul. Like that, okay? So, uh, that's a good reconstruction actually of one of those early boats. So, um, uh, you've got a harbor town on the east and the west. You've got a port on the east and the west with good berths. And what does that mean? Lots of kaching. There's a lot of money brought into town. There's a lot of money brought into town first because it's, it's, it's a port. And the whole reason New York City is New York City, at first, it was a deep water port that was first available for people coming from Europe. So you had merchandise, you had trade, you had people, all of the things that come with it. But what it ultimately means is money. Money in this sense, Strabo uh, 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 died probably 25 years before the story we're reading about. But probably 30 years or so before the events we're talking about said the following about Corinth. Corinth is called wealthy because of its commerce, since it is situated on the isthmus and is master of two harbors. These, doesn't mean everybody's rich. Generally, what it means is you have a bunch of rich people and probably a bunch of poor people and maybe some in the middle. But there's clearly a lot of wealth. And it's not surprising that when Paul will write back to the Corinthians, 
Some of the people he were dealing with were people who were in the money. Because Paul writes with a biting sarcasm to them. Paul says, hey, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And he says, oh, I wish you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul deals very bitingly with great sarcasm with the Corinthian church. But yeah, there were a lot of people who had a lot of money. Thought less of Paul and others because of it. We'll see why as we work through this. Now, not only did Corinth have two harbors, but they also had a lot of money because of the temples there. They had a lot of temples. If you go there today, this is the temple of Apollo. But uh, um, Strabo also said that the temple of Athena, which is up on the Acropolis, that's the hill you see behind, it's since been destroyed. So you don't have the temple of Athena up there. You've got some good medieval ruins, some good ancient ruins, but not that temple. According to Strabo, the temple had over a thousand temple servants, slaves, and prostitutes. Now, there is a little dispute. There's a minority view, but it's a solid enough view to where I mention it. That maybe the prostitution was not the way most scholars think that it was. But the general idea is there was a good bit of that either in the name of the temple or in this sailor town. It was certainly available on the streets. And Corinth became known for rampant sexual immorality, regardless of where it was. And so you've got sexual immorality and all that goes with that in this town. And it's not surprising to read things like this in Paul's writing to the Corinthians. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy, the swindlers. See, all of this is what happens in those sailor towns. You got the greedy people, you got the swindlers, you got the idolaters, countless temples there. Since, you know, I'm not saying don't associate with the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters because you'd need to go out of the world. You couldn't live in Corinth if you weren't going to associate with them. But here's what I'm saying. Don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. You don't even eat with them. That's Corinth. This is also a town where the Pan-Isthmus Games were held every other year. Think Olympics, but limited to this area. Interesting, they would even hold them every other year when all of the the city-states were warring against each other. And they'd call a truce from the war to hold the Pan-Isthmus Games every other year. Brought a lot of money into the city because it's a huge thing. There is an artist reconstruction, which I found interesting, of one of the races. Um, I put Nike shorts on the fellas because they do run naked, and I thought this is an all-age class. So just let me be prim and proper for a moment. And and Nike, uh, you can send a contribution to our school children for the free ad space. Um, This is a reconstruction of the starting gates for the way they ran their races. The poles 
would drape across the top, be tied by a string that goes down to the ground to a pulley, and you've got the starter in the back because their starting guns just wouldn't go off back then. So that's what they would do. And when the and if you broke the, the thing, you were disqualified. But if the strings pulled, the sticks fall down, and that's when the runners would take off. And these games were held every other year. It was a really, really big event. I mean, you know, you got the marketplaces loaded with all the vendors. Everybody stock up on food this week, catch more fish. We got everybody coming in for the Pan Isthmus games. All of the ends are filled, etc. Now, this is why Paul's able to write to him things like this. Do you not know in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I don't take off early. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm careful in how I live. So these are things that, that, that make sense to us as we understand Corinth. And uh, I throw them out there because into this city came Paul. This is the actual road he probably walked down. And you can go there today and walk into town on this road. It's an amazing opportunity. Into this city came Paul. <clears throat> I will um, uh, give you the Agora here. This is a reconstructed map based upon what was out there. So you've got uh, a big theater. You've also got a smaller Odeon. Uh, here's a picture of the Odeon to give you an idea of the size of what we're looking at there. The picture I've already given you of the Temple of Apollo that went there. Here's where the road is into town, the Lechion Road. And so you, you've got a good feel for it now, right? You ready to go with Paul? Acts chapter 18. All right, we can get that a little bit bigger and still see it. Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> now, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. By the way, Paul will call her Prisca. When he writes Romans, Prisca is a more formal name. Um, Priscilla is less formal. It's, it's very friendly. So Luke's using the friendly. It's, it's the difference between uh, uh, Rick and Ricky. Okay. Prisca, Priscilla. Um, he found a Jew na named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, this is a very important passage. Kathleen Hauser sent me an email about class recently, and she said, um, she said, how do, you know, you've given these dates. How do we know how long Paul was kind of 
not being talked about or maybe out of the game or whatever he was doing after his conversion, how long he was just being ministered and taught to by the Lord and, and those types of things. Because the scripture doesn't tell us. You back into it, Kathleen. Hi. You back into it, and this is one of the key passages that help us date these events. Because Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We can go to Suetonius, who wrote a history of the Caesars. And Suetonius wrote about this when he was writing about Claudius in his history. And he said the following. Since, whoops, since the Jews, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, now we're getting this in English, okay? That's Crestus or Christus, can be written either way. He expelled them from Rome. He allowed the envoys of the Germans to sit in the orchestra, blah, 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 blah. And it just goes on and lists all these things he did. Now, this isn't as tight for the timing of Paul's events as something we'll read about in a moment on Gallio. But it's still one of those things. Um, Crestus is, I mean, some people say, oh, there must be another Jew named Crestus other than Jesus or Christus. But most scholars recognize that that's a reference to the fact that that there was a fuss in Rome between the Jewish Christians and the Jewish non-Christians. And so the solution for uh, Claudius as emperor is just kick out all of the Jews. By the way, this is going to help us understand Romans when we look at it later. Because it makes sense why Paul's then writing to the church after the Jews have returned. See, what had happened when the Jews get kicked out, who runs the church? The Greeks, the Romans, the Latin Christians. Then the Jews come back and they're saying, okay, we're back. We'll take our church back. And it's kind of like, we were actually doing pretty good without you. you know? And so Paul's got to write to them and say, look, there's no difference between Jew and Greek. Y'all are both believers and that's just the way it is. You're all going to hell without Jesus. And with Jesus, you're all going to heaven. So we'll get to that more in Rome Keep when we get to Romans, so keep that in your brain. But at any rate, so Claudius, and this also, by the way, is one of the reasons God was so marvelous in his timing. Would have been kind of pointless for Paul to go to Rome just to get kicked out about the time he got there. A lot better for Paul to head down to Corinth and do this work that he's doing there. So um, Paul went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. Um, Skoinopoios. Skoinopoios is the Greek word for Greek for tent makers. Let me do it this way. You've got, I'm going to write it in English for you. Skano. Oh, I'm sorry. Poios. You can't see it? Skeno poios. And that's, it's a composite of two words. If it helps you, they didn't have a C, a hard C. So they use a K. So now, if you see it with our C instead, anybody care to guess what skeno means? 
It means a scene. It could mean a tent if it's translating a Hebrew idea or word. But if it's a Greek reference, it's a Greek reference to a scene, a backdrop, uh, 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 um, facades and things that were made for plays. Now, some scholars think, no, Jews would not associate with the theater, so that can't be what it means. But those backdrops were made of leather. So someone like F.F. Bruce says it means a leather worker. Someone like um, uh, uh, the ESV translates it a tent maker. Because the Hebrew idea would be a maker of tents instead of poyos means a maker. A maker of tents instead of a maker of scenes. We don't know for sure exactly what they were doing. Um, um, But they were doing work. They were doing some type of manual labor. And that's significant. It's significant for two reasons. First of all, to the Greeks, manual labor was despised. It was low class. It was, I guess if you've got to, you know, the world's got to have a few of them. That was the attitude. Very different for a Jewish trained rabbi. If we look, for example, at the Mishnah and what the Mishnah taught, what Paul would have been taught. And remember, Paul goes to synagogues first. Here is Pirk Abot, a passage out of uh, Pirk Abot 4.5. I've miscited it in your lesson as 4.7. Caught it too late. Sorry. Thus have you learned... Whoever derives worldly benefit from teachings of Torah takes his life out of this world. In other words, if I'm going to go and teach Torah for money, then I'm already getting my benefit. Now, Paul would teach Torah, but he would never take money except from believers. So when Paul goes into a town, he doesn't take any money. He'll take money from the Philippians after he leaves. He'll take support and stay with people, but he does not, he makes it very clear that I'm not bringing you to Jesus so that I can make money out of it. And I I tell you, it's one of the reasons I love at this church that our leadership almost every time before we take a collection, says, if you're a guest, we don't ask you to give. Just drop your uh, registration card in there. Because this is something that our members do. We don't want people coming here to visit so that they can make our collection plate bigger. We want them coming here to visit to meet the Lord. And uh, I really... uh, love our pastors for that. And it's, it's been the heart of this church for as long as I've been coming to this church. Um, anyway, I, I digress. So Paul's doing something, manual labor, so that there's no question at all about his motives and what he's about and why he is about it. So if we go back to our text, then it says, um, uh, uh, 
so he stayed with them because they were tent makers by trade and, and he was working with them. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Because remember, God-fearing Greeks would attend synagogue. Now, we can pause for a moment here, and you don't get it here, but let me make this smaller again. Um, this is this is important to note. So, um, you've got families of texts. This is just a freebie. If you don't like this, you can go to sleep for like four minutes. I'm going to dedicate four minutes to it. We'll wake you up when we're done. No problem. Okay, so here's what happens. Luke writes Acts. Okay, and this is the autograph original. He signs his name, Luke. And it is there. Now, Luke's writing of Acts gets copied by some people. Fred copies it. Uh... We'll spell Fred like a Greek would. Fred. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'm messing up and I'm about to write it in uh, Hebrew. Uh, <laughs> okay, so Fred gets a copy of this autograph. But how does he do it? He doesn't go to Kinko's. He handwrites this puppy. And he probably makes a mistake here or there. There may be one place where he spells it act instead of acts. Now, Fred's copy gets copied by three different people who all want one. This is uh, person A, B, and C. And the way person A, B, and C get it is someone's just standing up there reading it. And while they're reading it, three different people are making their copies. Because that way they can make three copies at once, right? It's pretty economical. But the reader, it's been a long day. He's been reading for a long time. And he says, instead of Jesus Christ, he says, Christ Jesus. So he makes that change. Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, someone else over here, aside from Fred, you've got Ethel. And Ethel, she wants her copy as well. So Ethel gets her a copy, but Ethel is a little bit frustrated because there are some details that were left out. Ethel might have been around that day. She might have been talking to Luke. She might have been talking to Paul. So Ethel writes it, but in the corner, she writes an extra little note. Extra. Because of something extra that happened. And then Ethel dies. Her kids get it. They put it for auction on eBay. Someone buys it and starts reading it. They don't realize that's an extra. They think it's part of it. So they take Ethel's, and when they make Ethel's copy for three different people, and this will be for E, F, and G, when they make it, all of a sudden that extra note is in the text itself. Because they just read it, and they just thought Ethel, when she was copying it, had made a mistake and left something out, so she inserted it on the side. 
Now, you come to today, where we've got thousands of these early manuscripts. And what scholars are able to do is they're able to put them together into families. This is the Fred family. This is the Ethel family. There may be another Fred over here. And there may be a Wilma. I mean, there can be lots of different families, but they're able to take these documents. If there's one in the Fred line that's got Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, they say, oh, it's from this generation or afterwards. Does this make sense? It's wonderful that we've got all these manuscripts because scholars are able to put together the New Testament with great authenticity. If we just had one, everybody might be saying, I wonder what mistakes might have been made over the years. But when you've got all these different families, you can figure it out. Now, there is a neutral text. It doesn't say neutral on it. It's just the ones that the scholars have figured out are most likely the most neutral with the fewest changes. So that's the name of one family. And then in our illustration here, that would be Fred. He's neutral. And Ethel would be what we might call the Western text. It's actually most represented in Acts by a manuscript called Bezai. But it's called Western because it was used more in the Western church. That's where these manuscripts would go. And so more people in the West were copying the Western one. I tell you all of that to say that there's an insertion here. And I also tell you that, that, that that's found in the Western text. That's likely true, even though it's probably not in Luke's original. It's just one of these little extra notes. And so if you look at this passage, and we were reading it in the Western text, it would say the following. It would say, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, inserting the name of Jesus, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So the Western text has this addition, inserting the name of Jesus. Now that might seem a bit odd to us, but that's the way it was done. You would insert the name of Jesus as Paul was reading the Old Testament. So that if Paul's reading, for example, Psalm 22 and preaching out of Psalm 22, a messianic psalm, he would preach as follows. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Said Jesus. And he could talk then about how Jesus said that from the cross. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day. You know, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me, Jesus Christ, mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Who trusts? Jesus Christ trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver Jesus. Let him rescue him. That's the way preaching would be done in the reading of Scripture. So it's, a, it's probably authentic as far as what was done, even though it's probably not in the original Luke wrote. It's probably a good ad by Ethel so that uh, uh, 
we just sort of have it. Oh, we were still going through this. Sorry. So here we are in Acts 18. So let's keep going because we got to move fast. I took too long on that. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Jesus, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles, which means probably not even teaching in the synagogue, just straight to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Now, uh, this is probably, his first name was Gaius, we believe, and Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, we'll refer to him uh, as one of the two that Paul baptized. Um, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Paul, when he writes the Corinthians, says, I'm so glad I didn't baptize all of y'all. You just, you're all mixed up with this. He says, now I did baptize Gaius and Crispus. So here's the other one Paul baptized. Believed in the Lord together with his household. And many of the Corinthians... Hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Again, you can see from Luke's writing. Doesn't say Paul baptized them. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Paul stays a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, I find this stunning. Why does Paul need this? This goes back to my opening about the looping of our walk with the Lord. I mean, Paul was struck blind and he got his vision from God. Paul was stoned in Galatia, but God spared his life. He's been locked up in prison in Philippi and an earthquake. God opens the doors. Why on earth is Paul so scared of being beaten that God has to come visit him in a vision in the night to encourage him? Answer? He's human. He's human. And God doesn't say, Hey, Bozo, after what you've been through and the way I've had my hand on you, you, are you sweating this one? What's your problem? Haven't you grown out of this yet? No, God comes and ministers to him where he is. Says, okay, we've done this loop before. Trust me, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I'm at work here. You're not doing this on your own, Paul. So when Gallio, now here's our other thing that really lets us date this with some precision, because we can date this right now to somewhere around 50, 51 AD. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, which is that Greece, think Greece, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. That's the way they spoke. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, before Paul can even defend himself, Gallio said to the Jews, Hey, if this were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, 
I'd be, I'd have reason to listen to you whine. That's my translation. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it to yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Zosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. They beat him in front of the tribunal. Gallio, he paid no attention. There is, the way most scholars understand this passage, and some debate it, but there is an ironic twist to this. Paul's worried about being beaten. Paul's worried about his safety and security. God not only says that, but then Luke tells the story about how when Paul's brought in front of Gallio, not only was Paul protected, but it looks like the ruler of the synagogue, Zosthenes, by the way, if you're saying, I thought Crispus was, they could have two or more, okay? It's not the ruler, but but one of the honchos, all right? The ruler of the synagogue, instead he gets beaten. And by the way, the odds are decent that this is the same Zosthenes that later becomes a believer. Because when Paul writes to the church, he calls out Zosthenes as a believer. Now, if we go back to the PowerPoint, please. We'll bring this to a close here. All of this happened, by the way, down here at the Bema. Um, here's a pep copy of it today. This is where the proconsul would sit and hold court. So this is where Gallio would have done it and where Paul would have been. We can stick it down there where it goes. So this is really a, a, a neat opportunity if you ever get the chance. But if not, that's okay. You can get on the internet and read a lot of these things. Be careful with some of the narrative. Some of the narrative is off. Uh, there are some internet references of the population being 800,000. No one's done that estimate. It's more likely about 150,000. Um, so there's Corinthia, which is the whole region. That might have been 800,000. Well, anyway, let's go to the points for home. Point for home one. They were tent makers by trade. And I really like this. I like the fact that Paul was working for a living. The Greek culture didn't like it. The Greek culture thought that the wise people and the successful people were the ones that had tons of slaves to do all the work. And all they did was sit around and think. All they did is sit around and talk. And they had no chores. And they had no responsibilities. They were permanently retired and doing nothing at an early age. John Chrysostom maybe the most famous preacher in all of church history. In the fourth century, in one of his sermons on this passage, said that the lesson from this is, is it's not the idle who are being godly. God has work for men to do. Men and women. And we need to be about it. And it's not simply, oh, that means we need to be knocking on doors every day. No. You do do your, your times of evangelism and all, but that means you need to be about your jobs. You need to be about doing constructive things. You need to be about teaching and building and, and cleaning and cooking and, and, and all of the things of life. Because there is a redemption that comes in those things. In addition to St. John Chrysostom, I quote my sister Catherine. 
But he said the goal in life is not to get old enough to retire, draw Social Security, and walk on a beach looking at seashells. Now, there's a time and a place to do that, but the goal in life is to spend every day until you die living, eating, breathing, and working to the glory of God in whatever capacity He has called you to do. Now, there's a time you no longer do anything for God in this earth on this body. We call that dead. (laughs) But in the meantime, Lord put me to work. Point for home two. God to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. Do not be afraid. Don't be silent. I'm with you. Got my friend down here, Jerry, who's ministering to people at work. And they're not happy about it. He's doing it diplomatically too. It's not an in-your-face thing. But he's got the assurance, I think, so far that they're not going to beat him up. (laughs) They'd be mean to him maybe. Actually, I wouldn't want to mess with him. He might fight back. But, you know, I'm with you. No one's going to attack you to harm you. I'm going to take care of you. Now, this is being said to a man who has been locked in jail, who has been beaten, who has been stoned. He'll have that many more times. But at that time, it's what he needed to hear. Because we have a God who meets our needs. There are some things I will probably be able to handle tomorrow that I cannot handle today. And I have the assurance of God. He's not going to put it on my plate on a day I can't handle it. And if you've got it on your plate today, you can handle it today. That's the faithfulness of God. And it's his faithfulness because of point three. I have many people in this city who are my people. God is the one working. The Lord's prayer doesn't say your kingdom come for no reason at all. It's what this is about. We live in the last days since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And they're called the last days because God is bringing to a consummation the end of what he started. And that is the redemption of humanity for eternity. And we're living in that story. That's part of who we are and what we do. So, But it's his story. We're exulting in his deeds, not our own. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your love. And we thank you so much for your comfort. And we thank you so much for your gentle patience and kindness. The way you you take us with all of our humanity. And you continue to love us and you continue to, to, to rear us as children. To be more like you every day. Steps forward, steps backwards, yet constantly growing to be like you. Lord, that's all we want. Put us to work, please, Lord. Protect us. Give us strength so that we can be about your program. And watch your kingdom come. And your plan be consummated. And spend eternity with you.
We pray in the name and by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.